welcome to The Confessional. I'm Mike Moran. Tell us your deepest, your creepiest, your funniest. Confess to us. No one's listening. All right, everybody, welcome to The Confessional. My name is Mike Moran, and I am joined, as always, by my trusty producer, Jimmy Seleski. Jimmy? Not so trusty today. A little bit late today, Jimmy. <laughs> a little bit late. You got your times mixed up. Yeah, I was. Uh, I thought we were in central time zone. Didn't it used to... Didn't daylight savings time used to start in October? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's where I was coming from. I <laughs> really? Thought, yeah. I, no, no, no. The truth <laughs> is, like by times ago. mixed up, I thought that we were doing one, and so I just slept in. That's all right. And then I woke up t- at 12.02 and realized it was not 1 p.m. So. All right. Um, Jimmy. Yes. Where can people find the confessional online? Should um, they want to submit? Yeah, so uh, every week, I believe, you post up a uh, little thing for people to... Uh, participate in like the topic of the week on your Facebook page. People can submit their confessions. They can email you. Absolutely. Um, and that's Confessional Podcast on Facebook, and we're Confessional Podcast on everything. So if you go facebook.com slash confessional podcast, like that page, that's where all the action's at. Fantastic. And if you want to listen to us, we're on every streaming platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anything you can think of. We can even send you a cassette in the mail if you like to go that route. Yeah, yeah. I'm currently recording one right now. Jimmy. Yes. Today, this is what, just in time... Just right in time in October, mm-hmm. we're going to be discussing September 11th stories. Wow. Very bad. Very sad day for America. How old were you when, when September 11th happened, I Jimmy? was nine years old. Wow. Yep. Wow. Nine years old. I, was, I remember I was in fourth grade. Did you comprehend what happened? Not particularly. Um, I... You know, at the time, it, it took a while before we even knew what happened. I just remember, you know, I'll talk about it later. But I remember being in the classroom. They say everybody remembers where they were. And then, like, later on that day, watching the news. And right. just, I, think, I think when we got let out of school, it was only the first plane had hit. Oh. And then it was, like, a certain amount of time later that the right. other one hit. And right. that was, like, when I, everybody was back home. Then everybody was freaking out. Yeah. yeah. So I remember even as a kid just being, like, I remember thinking, you know, I think I was way ahead of the curve uh, in terms of just political awareness, because even at the time, I said it was the Russians. I remember <laughs> I, I did. <laughs> the Russians? That was my generation. No, nah, I, I, you know, now it's all Russia, Russia, Russia. Now, I, when I was well, nine it, years well, old. It, it was the Russians, then it wasn't the Russians for the 90s. Now it's the Russians. Now it's the Russians again. The Russians now again. it's the Russians again. And I feel like I brought that back in fourth grade. My dad picked that me up. That was around. you. I remember standing in the lobby, and he was like, we don't know who it is yet, blah, blah, blah. We don't know what's happening. I was like, Dad. I think it's the Russians. <laughs> we got to send Rocky over there post haste. <laughs> yeah. He'll take care of this. Well, yeah. Um, our guest today, Jimmy, good friend of mine, very good Baltimore musician. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He uh, he did the Chris Cornell tribute with us a few years ago. That was a lot of fun. Oh, cool. And uh, he actually has a he's he's uh, soon to be a published author. And I'm actually very much looking forward to this because we're friends on Facebook, and I always wonder is his last name pronounced like the Credito. Or is it just Credito? So now I get to figure <laughs> that out now. You really think he pronounces it Credito? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I thought maybe I it could be just Credito, you know, like, I don't know. Yes, you actually you said it correct the second time, but the, 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 the first time he said it, um, Jimmy, with the uh, with the Eastern European accent, that was like perfect. Right. As far nice. as like if, if you were the, if getting down with the original pronunciation. I was watching said, a lot of yeah, the Russians again. I was watching a lot of Arnold Schwarzenegger motivational YouTube videos last night, and I think it's uh, rubbing, rubbing off see. on me now. It's rubbing off. Right. So. Yeah. I was watching Chernobyl. Oh, well, that's rubbing off on you. I can tell you, you know. <laughs> um, but please, please welcome to the to the confessional, Derek. Credito. <laughs> hi, Derek. How do you really well, say hi. your name? It's Credito. All right. Um, you know, with uh, I guess the the second yeah, the second there the T is more like a D, and right. There's so many different ways you could pronounce it. I, I respond to so many different things. You know, like it's Professor Credito. Sometimes they right. say Doctor Credito, and I'm not a doctor, but I might just kind of just right, enjoy right. the moment and just DJ Creedy Creed. Um. 
Now, whenever you use a credit card, are there are there some smart Alex salespeople that are like, oh, what is this, a credito card? <laughs> <laughs> I've never had that, but I could totally see that happening. Right, right. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, now, Derek, we are very excited to hear about your book coming out. Can you, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, I'm, right now I'm going through the sort of the depressing sort of uh, stage of stripping out all the content that doesn't need to be there, like the trips to McDonald's and, you know, things that don't really move the story or hold the story back. Mm. And I'm kind of letting go of a lot of writing. Like I've shed like maybe upwards of 15,000 words. That's It's hard, isn't it? It's the, they, they call that, this is really ugly, uh, ugly expression, but killing your babies. Where you, where you have to take yeah. out the stuff you don't want to take out, but you got to edit it for the sake of the story. But I'm also adding, trying to, as I take something out, I try to put something back in. Right. And so it's a little bit of creativity going on there. Okay. Um, but my plan is to have this book maybe ready to pitch uh, to a literary agent's let's say sometime in the early part of next year. Now okay. with everything that's going on in the world, I, I think that the conventional wisdom that writers have been saying to other writers and publishers have been perhaps expressing as well is to kind of don't worry, don't sweat it until after we kind of get through the next big hurdle, mm. whatever that may be, whether it's, well, you know, the vaccine or, or right. you know, coronavirus, whatever. At this know. point I have, it could be anything. It could be a giant worm attack. Yeah, <laughs> yeah at this one. point um it's, so it's it's um from this from this stage i guess it's just like i'm going to say like the timetable would point to the early part of next year but i can't really uh promise anything man we we have so we're putting so much pressure on 2021 as I a know. as a globe <laughs> the entire world is putting so much pressure on 2021 to be the best year ever it, it, i mean it kind of it it kind of has nowhere to go but up. I mean, <laughs> I say that, but but yeah, I say that. We're gonna that, get through but. this vaccine, and then everything's gonna be normal, and we're gonna be like, huh? Guess life wasn't all that exciting. Yeah, exactly. Without the we're vaccine. Back to normal, we're like, dude. No, but uh, what's the name excuse. of your book, Derek? The name of the book is The Wandering Scribe. Awesome, awesome. I, I read a bunch of it. It's very interesting. I like it a lot. Can Can you give us a brief synopsis? Sure. Well, um, as you know, the main character, his name is Wes Levine, and he's traveling the world in search of a couple things. He's, um, he's looking for his long lost father who had disappeared um, into Mexico and was sent sort of, you know, um, gallivanting around the world. Mm. And, and so he goes to Thailand and uh, followed by New Zealand. Um, and he's also searching for another thing. And that is he's looking for um, an employer who will, sponsor him to write a Hebrew uh, Torah synagogues in, in places like Auckland, New Zealand and Amsterdam and the Netherlands. He lands in Amsterdam and that's where the majority of the book is, is taking place. Mm. Um, and it's there that he ultimately becomes the only scribe in the entire country. And he, he does what he set out to do. And that was to write a, a, a Sefer Torah or a sacred Torah scroll for his late grandparents who had narrowly escaped uh, the Holocaust in World War II. All right, and they they had since deceased, and and so he has these two things he's after, and um, and so I guess that's that's where the where the uh, where the plot is going as far as the uh, connection to nine eleven. That's another story. Yeah, yeah. What's what's the connection there? Tell us about that. Well, the novel is set in two thousand four, and the main character, uh, perhaps this was a little bit autobiographical when I had written about nine eleven as being a significant. Um, challenging event in, in, in his life, you know, something to deal with. And so there is some mention of, of September 11th and what it's like to be an American overseas, how sure. sometimes that was like, um, for, in my experience of five years living overseas, it was mostly good, I'd say, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but every once in a while there was someone who might like associate, you know, me with whatever was going on with, in terms of politics or foreign policy. Right. Um, and so, and so that was definitely something that I experienced as a traveler myself. And I, and I guess you could say that might be the only thing about the book that sort of is drawn from my own life, you know, like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fiction, but maybe it's based on places and events in my own life. Okay. All right. Well, it sounds great. Uh, we'll look forward to that. The, the wandering scribe. Um, and this is your first book published, correct? That is correct. I've, um, I've never gotten quite this far with a book. I, right. When I was living in Thailand back in 2004, I was attempting a novel, but it never really uh, 
never really saw the light of day. I guess I decided not to publish that. It was it was kind of like an immature first effort. Okay. And hopefully, hopefully, I've grown up a little bit since two thousand four. What what made it immature? Well, it was immature because it wasn't very well thought out, and the characters were. It was kind of absurd. All right. Um, you know, it's like you have this guy. Did it have who, a Sharknado um, in it? A shark, not quite that absurd. What was really absurd about it is that this guy becomes an anti-gun activist, um, you know, after his father is like accidentally killed by a police officer. And it was really kind of like, it was very tone deaf. It was like, when does a white guy ever get shot by the police accidentally or on purpose? You know, it was just like, mm-hmm. I was living overseas and I was disconnected from all that was going on in America, culturally, socially, and otherwise. And Right. And I guess that was just one example of why it was ridiculous. Another yeah. way that it was ridiculous is that he breaks the, the, you know, the character who's avenging his father's death and going after the gun lobby, he breaks his leg and he's in a wheelchair, which sort of happens to the character in my current book as well. But he breaks his legs and he's in a wheelchair and he's just doing all these absurd things like, you know, like um, it just it just it seemed like it was a like very playing that death. murder ball. Is that what that's called? The, with the wheelchair <laughs> basketball? Oh, no, 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 nothing like that. But he would be like, um, let's say just like eating Twinkies and having his having his girlfriend taking care of him when his girlfriend is supposed to be like an attorney. It's just like she wouldn't be like, you know, serving him Twinkies if if she was you know working, you know, busy, working busy, like the busy life of a, of a lawyer. Or well, what have you. So if she had like, her priorities, her priorities straight. She might be. <laughs> Perhaps, but when I look back, I remember I I opened it up and looked back at it. I was, I, it was worth the laughter because sure. I was just laughing at the absurdity that I mean, I, nice. I once thought this was going to make me a million bucks. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't understand how anyone does anything successfully in their early twenties. You know, it's like it's shocking that there's like bands, you know, that make it or actors. It's like, how do you do that? Um, but anyway, this uh, first confession about nine eleven. Is from Chris Dyke, uh, Muscatan, Michigan. I remember how insane the teachers in my school were acting. I recall my fourth hour computer tech. The two instructors set up the projector to watch the news on the back wall. Eventually, the principal went over the intercom uh, to write the ship, so to speak. I didn't truly understand what was going on until I got home and my mother talked with me. Learned a lot that day. I don't know. Is maybe Jimmy can can speak to this as he was he was young in that era. Was it appropriate to show the children the the terrorist attack on? Um, I guess you know, I I can't really speak to how, what I would do if I were a teacher in that situation. Um, but in my personal uh scenario, the teachers didn't tell us what happened. They basically okay. they got on the announcements and they said. Hey, we're. Ba- I forgot exactly what they said, but we're shutting schools down early. My dad had actually come down to the school. Oh wow! Before they canceled school, like he was already there, saying like, "I'm taking my kid out." They Whoa. were like, well, "We haven't canceled school yet." He was like, "I don't care. I'm getting my kid out of here." Wow! And then, like ten minutes later, they made the final call to let everybody out, and everybody's parents were just in the lobby uh-huh. waiting for him, and nobody knew. I when I got to the lobby was when my p- dad was said something happened or whatever, but the teachers didn't tell us and. I kind of feel like that's really not the in the place of the teachers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but at the well, same time, it's a tough time, call, you know. Yeah, it's, it's a tough call. You, you know, it depends on the age of the kids. Sure. You know, if it's like we were in elementary school, then maybe it's probably best to just say, hey, buddy, we're sending you home to school and then leave it up to the parents sure. how they want to explain it. Probably. If it's high schoolers, then yeah, yeah. I could probably see mm-hmm. your 10th mm-hmm. grade teacher being like, guys, some shit just happened. We're going to pop on the news. You know, that, mm-hmm. it's just different ways of dealing with stuff, yeah, I think. Yeah. What do, you, what do you think of that, Derek? Was uh, is was that appropriate for the for the teacher to show the the footage in in school? Well, at the time, I was actually uh, twenty three years old. I just turned twenty three. I wasn't in school at all, and I was just basically living at home, like this sort of Wayne's World kind of existence. And um, you know, and so I just remember that for me, it was um, if I was a teacher, I would probably use some discretion. I would say that I would certainly not want to see something or to share. I'm sorry, to share something uh, that would be maybe excessively graphic, but mm-hmm. certainly I, I don't recall seeing anything on the news that day. Right. That would have been right. maybe, uh, I don't know, yeah. as a community 
college teacher, I would probably show it. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's not like it was necessarily like a gory, ultra disturbing display, but it was, I don't know, was it shocking to you, like in a traumatic kind of way as a kid to see those explosions and to see the, the towers fall down? Or did it feel like for me it, it, at that age, it like, because it's such a big thing, you're not really seeing like intimate you know, por- yeah. portrayals of people in pain. Yeah. Like, really, seeing the people, like, crying and screaming and stuff on the ground, mm-hmm. to me, was a little bit more disturbing than seeing the actual yeah. explosions. Yeah. Um, so, as, as a kid, Jimmy, what, what was that What was that like? Did it freak you out? Or? I think that there's a certain amount of disconnect that you have at that age. Like, you know, it's New York City. I had never been in New York City. Mm-hmm. All I, you know, you're just a kid, and you know, oh, New York's in America, and that, I've heard of New York. Every movie right. I've ever watched is based there. Sure. I don't know what the hell the World Trade Centers are. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just seeing this building that I have no connection with on TV mm-hmm. and a plane flying into it. And at the time, you can definitely process that it is a... Obviously, a, you know, a term, like a crazy thing that's going on right now. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's kind of even even when you get to a certain age, it's kind of the same way when you hear about like a shooting or something, and you sure. feel like you're supposed to care, right? But you just can't. You know, it's like yeah. you care, but you don't. I, right, you'd be right. lying if you were like, "Oh my god, I was." Shaking. Yeah, I mean, I still to this day, honestly, kind of struggle with that. Like with um, having feelings for for like. Uh, Mm-hmm. newsworthy of I mean obviously it's very sad for the, for all the people involved and like if yeah. you get deep into it but it's I always think like you know there's thousands of people that die every yeah. day yeah. you can't you can't be mm-hmm. sad for all of them yeah. you know what I mean mm-hmm. so like when someone's like uh you know this happened on the news or whatever that's so sad like it's hard for me to connect with that which mm-hmm. makes me look a little sociopathic at times no I think really- I think that that's really where most people are coming from and mm-hmm. there's this there's this kind of need to to feel like you have to contrive some faux mm-hmm. empathy, not mm-hmm. empathy. You can obviously feel empathy for things, sure. but you know, to act like you're absolutely sh- like, just like taken aback by yeah. every single thing you hear in the news is like, right, right. You can't. And, and at that age, like if that, if something were to happen like that right now at 28 years old, that would register with me on a much higher level. Like, uh-huh. holy shit. But when right. you're nine, you just see something you have no connection to. And I've kind of felt the same way. I felt, felt, a year ago when you hear about like a school shooting and it's mm-hmm. like, oh man, I can't believe this happened. But it's like, ultimately I was still kind of just like, uh, you know, like, right, right. That's the, yeah. that's the extent that I can go with it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Admittedly. Now the, the funny thing, Derek was you and this was the second world trade center attack that you and I witnessed, right? Because there was another one in like 93. Did you know that Jimmy? Um, I feel like that rings a bell. Some terrorists uh, tried like 10 years before to, uh, to blow up the, to destroy both the trade centers. Do you remember that, Derek? Derek? I do. And I think that I, I, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, Sorry. Um, I do remember that, but I don't remember it being as much more as sort of more or less a failed attempt. Yeah. Um, I don't. It didn't really result in any kind of right, loss of right. life. Not, I don't know how. Maybe some loss. I think of life there were some, but it was it, basically they set off a bomb in in one of the parking garages under one of the towers in okay. a van, I believe. I think they actually lit a fuse and ran, <laughs> like a cartoon. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it, I think the plan was for it to, for this for the uh, support to be destroyed, and one tower would topple onto the other one. But uh, it didn't happen, but I, I think there were some people killed, unfortunately. Yeah, that definitely feels like that entire terrorist plot was orchestrated by the Tasmanian devil. <laughs> just, well, I mean, 9-11 worked. And that was 9-11 like, worked. That was orchestrated by a real person. Now, this guy. <laughs> and again, we're, we're not at all trying to like make light of any, any of this stuff. Oh, but no, like, I'm just trying to toss him. Um, Jabs the funny, the, well, not the funny. No one, the, no one died in this one, so I feel like right. you're a little bit more at liberty to I joke around. I think there might have been a few deaths. I'm not sure. Oh, though. Well, okay, sorry. Um, sorry. But uh, the fact that the the planes that hit the towers, a lot of did did they even know that the towers were going to fall? I heard speculation that they didn't even know that the towers would crumble. That it was just they're just going to kill whoever they plowed into. You're, you think that the the terrorists in 9/11 were like like the uh, 9-11 truthers before it even happened. In a way, like, yeah. Tell me how they fell. How does airplane fuel <laughs> melt steel before they even did it? <laughs> right. It's funny, too, how like the truthers would always be like, like, when have you ever seen 
fuel melt steel. It's like, when have you ever seen this? Like, when has this ever happened before? <laughs> yeah, you they know? watch it's something like, in a movie. They're like, dude, explain <laughs> airplane fuel supposed to melt steel. How do you like, explain this know. unprecedented thing that's only happened once? <laughs> like, <laughs> building seven, I could though. See I could see it now. If the truther movement was big enough, mm-hmm. perhaps. Um, there might be some eccentric millionaire that'll go into the middle of like a cornfield and build two towers and fly planes and then just to see what happens. I'm surprised Elon yeah. Musk hasn't day. done that right now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what are your, uh, what are your thoughts on the truthers, Derek, the nine 11 truthers? Well, I, I gotta be completely honest. I mean, for a while I might've actually been one of them. All right. I appreciate your honesty. I, I, I might've been, Thanks I might have been truth. someone who at one point would have maybe said, you know, maybe people don't want to believe that their government could do something like this to them. Mm-hmm. But I had really believed that it was done for political gain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, that's what I I'd really for a while believed that. And and I guess it's just something I wrestled with for so long and I just decided to stop wrestling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't believe in that particular conspiracy theory, but there there were some conspiracy theories I believed in when I was younger that I look at now and I'm like, Jesus Christ, there's no way. Um, Jimmy, were you did you ever dabble in, in truthing? Um I you know, I, I dabble in all kinds of stuff like that because I do, you know, there's a lot of when something like that happens, sure. first of especially all, when you're young. Like. Yeah, and and like what he said, the belief that your government uh, could or would do something like that to its own people. Well, historically speaking, that has been the case. Yeah, and so to me, it's a, it's a certain level of not naivete. I hate that word because I never know how to pronounce it. <laughs> Feliz naivete. Yeah. There's a certain amount of, uh, you know, blissful uh, unawareness or ignorance, some might say, to imagine, to, to, to exist in this world where your government could never, ever do something like that to its people, even though you can trace throughout history, right, recent right. history, and yeah. see all kinds of travesties that have been inflicted upon their people. Yeah, I mean, conspiracies do exist. Government conspiracies do happen, and yeah. false flag attacks do happen. Yes. But this one, I think, is just too, oh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Just I, too much. Like It's... um. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, you have to wonder. I mean, also another thing Derek said about political gain. I I think that sometimes, like, in these situations, tragedies occur, and then they are uh, they are exploited oh, for absolutely. political gain. So there's no doubt that— I think they're that, almost never not exploited. Yeah, so this, this 9-11 thing very well may have been uh, exploited or used right. as a justification for our— things that we did after that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, but as far as whether or not the government— orchestrated it personally i don't think so but what i absolutely do believe is uh i i'm i tend to be of the ilk of people who find the government to be uh tremendously incompetent at a lot of things um Hmm. and i well you've probably never been in the dmv then yeah i know that's that's just a model of of you know (laughs) efficiency but uh you know i i have no doubt about it that we probably could have stopped this attack really um, that there was probably if if people were on the ball and if people were aware of what happened. I mean, okay. it just I, I okay. you know. Yeah. Do you agree with that, Derek? I would say so because I think that there was um, they could have been stopped if there was more done to regulate the airline industry. And um, the candidate who I supported in the 2000 election was Al Gore, and he actually had a plan in place that if elected president, he would have you know basically taken care of the airline industry in terms of like you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. the ins and outs of it, but it it, it would have you know very possibly prevented. I don't know, it, I, but he, it, I mean, Bush was barely in office at that point. Do you think he would have had enough time to 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 make a difference? That's a big if. I mean, in the first eight months um, of the two thousand of the new twenty first century, I mean. It depends on how much of a priority. If it was, right. Let's say if it was really peaceful times in the early two, in early 2001, which as I recall, it was fairly peaceful. It was sort of mm. like the calm before the storm. We were doing it for the and Nookie. And I think Al Gore was president yeah. and we were doing it for the Nookie. Yeah, like we're talking Limp Bizkit um, right. in those days. Yeah, right. so We knew what Kid Tommy Rock's Lee name was because he told us <laughs> at the beginning of his song. <laughs> but like um, it's – I guess it's just it's, – it's so hard to say. What There, there might have been too many other issues that – that he would have been dealing sure. with. Um, yeah, it's hard elected. to say. So him. I would say that it's probably it's yeah. probably anyone's guess. Okay. All right, let's read another one here from uh, Adam Pippert, Hillsborough, Oregon. Mm. I was working switchboard at my university during plane hit number one. 
Small school with 1,700 kids, so switchboard was one person in the IT department during the morning hours and campus safety after. Constant phone ringing from parents trying to get connected to their kids to let them know they were safe. Guy across the hall had a brother who had worked in South Tower, but he ended up not being there that day. Tons of kids I knew with parents at the Pentagon or WTC, and they canceled classes the rest of the week. Wow. So Adam was, was really in it. Scary. Um, there, was a, there was certainly a big wave of uh, probably justified paranoia afterwards. Uh, were, were you guys worried that this was just the beginning when it happened, Derek? Um, I personally wasn't. Believe it or not, I was so young and reckless. I was like 23 at the time. And, and I was like basically unafraid. I started traveling pretty much in the aftermath of 9-11. But I remember like some people in my neighborhood, I grew up in a small town and I would hear things like, oh, they're going to come to our neighborhood. The Muslims right, are going right. to come to our neighborhood. And yeah. so it's like a lot of that sort of small town right, paranoia. Right. I was certainly yeah. and unfortunately exposed to some of that. Yeah, yeah, there was there was some xenophobia going on, and and sir, but you know, I think the paranoia to some degree was justified in that people just were shocked not not the not the ethnically based paranoia, but uh, that people were just shocked into like, oh my god, if if we're under attack, this could just be the first wave, you know? Yeah. And everyone seems to have forgotten about the uh, the anthrax attacks. You guys remember the anthrax attacks? Yeah, I remember that being a big thing. Yeah, yeah, it, it feels like history's erased that. Yeah, it feels like history's erased the good old Taliban, dude. That was like the original. I remember there was like Taliban that we were scared of, and then it became Al Qaeda. Right. The hipsters joined Taliban. Yeah. And then it was, now it's like ISIS or whatever. But right. Taliban was the original like ter- terrorist. You know, you know what's really crazy with the Taliban is um, the we were talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger earlier. In his, uh-huh. or, no, I'm sorry, Sylvester Stallone and his fight against communism in the 80s via Rocky IV and Rocky. T- uh, Rambo two and three. Yeah, he defeated communism. And in the third Rambo, he the whole film is dedicated to the group that became the Taliban, basically. Really? Yeah, because you know America supported them at, oh, in yeah. their early stages when, oh, yeah. they, when they were fighting the the Soviets. Much like Saddam Hussein, we we support you until you go awry, and then we don't support you anymore. Right. And then you become our worst enemy, right? And, and right. we fund some other group to. Yeah, be the Cold you, War then... was an ugly, weird time. Yeah, I hope there isn't nearly as much of that anymore. Yeah. Uh, were you aware of that, At least Derek? I hope it's warmer. That uh, uh, Rambo three was was dedicated to the Taliban in a way. I mean, literally at the beginning, there was a dedication oh, to the people. Oh, I did see. Um, <laughs> what were they called at the time? I can't remember. Yeah, I saw that dedicated to the gallant people of Afghanistan, but I don't, I don't think it was just the Taliban. I think it was just Afghanistan. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, maybe as a, as, a, as a culture. Okay, as a as a country, as a culture. I don't think there was any kind of Ill, Ill intention there, but I think I know the movie you're talking about. <laughs> um, um. So, Derek, why don't you uh, why don't you just give us a, a brief synopsis of your your 9/11 experience? Well, my experience in the aftermath of 9/11 was um, like like I said, I was living at home. I hadn't yet sort of branched out on my own or traveled or or launched any kind of a career. I was in a band at the time that was playing around Baltimore um, and we were supposed to play like uh, two days after 9-11. We actually did play and there were some people actually showed up. Really? So it was pretty wow. cool. Um, but after a while, I found that um, 9-11 hit me because in a, in a particularly impactful way, because it was also at the same time that I had a lot of family problems and I, basically had falling out happening with basically my immediate family and, and virtually everyone else in the whole, mm. you know, all my cousins and relatives. It's almost like everyone I grew up with in that instant was like cast out of our lives. Hmm. You know, we're talking people I grew up with. Really? People, people that I had so many memories. What, with, what happened? If you, you know, don't mind me asking. Well, it was just stuff that had to do with my parents against uh, parents of my, you know, uh, like the okay. other you know, aunts and uncles. And it was just like, a lot of sort of sibling rivalries, which is not uncommon right. in families, right. but this was to such an extreme that by the time I grew up, like I said, everyone I knew was out of the picture all of a sudden, just sure. like we had Labor Day weekend and then poof. Mm. And then comes 9-11. Mm-hmm. It goes to so September mm-hmm. 4, whatever Labor Day was, then comes all this bickering and falling out sure. and, and it's like a nuclear war. Hmm. And then comes 9-11. Right, right. Wow. 
Uh, so, uh, so what, what became of that? What, what happened in the months afterward? Did, you, did, did things start to get better or did, did 9-11 bring your family back together at all? Because, you know, there was a kind of a, a sense of reconciliation among people in a way. Yeah, you could say that it did in terms of my immediate family. I guess you could say we had a little bit of a peaceful spell for a while, I'd say. Right. But then by the end of the year and the holidays, we yeah. started fighting again and we- then we make it. Which kind of encapsulates the American spirit at that time. Like for a minute, we were all Americans. We were in it together. And then 12 seconds later, we're turning, we're politicizing this into a way to hate each other. Yep. (laughs) You know what I mean? The American way. Yeah. Um, I I, I guess you could say that it was, um, you know, in in my own family, you know, like they're, they're very political people. And mm -hmm, as soon as mm -hmm. like the, basically, as soon as the plane hit the tower, you know, there was this talk of war and mm-hmm. all this other stuff. And that really kind of had a negative impact on me because I, my vision of the 21st century was flowers everywhere. You know, we're talking flowers in my hair, flower <laughs> necklace. I wanted uh, flowers. Yeah. turn on the water faucet and, 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 and flowers and, 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 come out. Yes, yes. Like I want to be, you know, smoke and flowers. Absolutely, you know, whatever. nothing but flowers. And, and it didn't quite happen like no. that. The 21st century has been pretty pretty painful so far well you know i will i will i will be the contrarian in this sense even though horrible things continue to happen around the world and people suffer greatly statistically i do think the 21st century is doing a whole lot better than the 20th century i think especially since the end of the cold war in the mid 90s uh the poverty has decreased around the world um violence in general war um, all, all that bad stuff, health, I think has generally gotten better. There's some things that have gotten worse. The, the drug addiction, the, the prescription drug addiction has gotten really bad in the last few years. Yeah. Drugs. That's the flower um, power people though. Right. The what? <laughs> that was their fault back in the sixties. Oh, that was all the them, flower doing people? Doing all them drugs, you know? Right. Yeah. There's your flowers, Derek. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> you want to see the I, end result of flower power? Go down a. <laughs> yeah. I do believe that there, there is hope despite the fact that, you know, bad things will happen. I believe statistically, they are shrinking, and yeah, I realize I'm a white male, you know, who has who has some privilege in that capacity. But I do think if the numbers are telling the truth, things are getting better for most people the world over. Yeah, I agree with you. Do you agree with we'll that, Derek? So. Um, I would say that um, it's it's so hard to say if I would buy that totally. I think it certainly is a positive outlook, and I appreciate it. Mm. But whether or not I, in my heart of hearts, I guess I kind of tend to feel the. Uh, I'm an empath and I tend to like see the suffering. So I really, I, I wish I, I would love to be able to endorse that statement. I guess we, we should make okay. it a goal as a, as a society, as a world mm-hmm. to turn that into a reality mm-hmm. where, where, where these problems are diminished. And um, so hopefully in some form we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see yeah. that manifest. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think progress, not, I don't think we'll ever see perfection. I don't think we're ever going to see a 0% war rate or, you know, uh, poverty, you know, but I think, progress should be our should be our goal and i think things are progressing for the most part um now i derek i get the sense that you're kind of ahead of the curb uh as far as uh the the era that you're writing about for this book because i'll tell you it's i i'm not i i guess like early 2000s nostalgia is coming next right like that's the next and and that's going to be really weird for me because you know like the 90s were history, 80s were history, 70s were before I was born, but the 2000s, that was last week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, um, I'm certainly proud to represent that era. Um, I would say, if anything, I'm more partial to the 90s. Like, I love 90s music yeah, and, and culture. Um, and so the early 2000s, I would say, culturally was not my favorite time, but having lived it i guess you could say for me it was a heady time i mm-hmm. traveled around the whole world as an energy English drinks teacher. were abundant yeah that's all i remember about the 2000s and i guess you could say that it was um it was pretty good in that way but like um looking at it retrospectively is is quite an experience like revisiting that era right um as you might recall from the from the book um Mike, that there's a lot of talk about those flip phones and those little, yeah. you know, different cell phones that we used to have back in yeah. those days. iPods. It's so Wait, technology, I think. Yeah. I mean, for you, Jimmy, you're a little younger. You must see the 2000s the way I saw like the 90s or the 80s, right? Like it's its own thing. 
there's a certain style <clears throat> that you associate with Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I mean, like, you know, to me, when I think I was, I think middle school is when you start paying attention to uh-huh. fashion culture. and culture and mm-hmm. things like that. And so for me, I, I was born in 92. So middle school started in 03 for me. Um, you know, I obviously remember. Uh, I mean, I was eight years old when the 90s were over, so right. I remember all that stuff. But being a kid, again, it just kind of feels like you just are – that just is what wor- the world is. You're not thinking in terms of like, oh, look at these stupid puffy jackets we're wearing, these weird multicolored <laughs> that shirts. Thing? I, those big, I just remember those big winter coats that were like yeah, super like, puffy. Yeah, I can like picture those, but I don't know when and where you yeah, know, they were like – You know, and like watching what was on TV, but like when you're a kid, that's all you'd ever seen on of TV. Course, so you're not thinking like, oh, this is classic 90s television. You're just watching this is TV. Right, right. But in the 2000s, you started paying. I started noticing, like, oh, this is an actual cultural shift. Like with the emo right. and the the what, those big stupid clown pants that Juggalos wore, the junker junkies or, or Jinkos. Jinkos. No, those were 90s. Oh, whatever. That was my. That was like late 90s, maybe early 2000s. Just, that was like the metal, the new metal era. Okay, okay, okay. I'm just talking about like bands like Good Charlotte and that kind of like that whole like emo pop right. punk thing, Blink 182, all right. those things, and that whole scene. I remember scene kids were a thing. That whole culture. That was like the first time i noticed that there were obvious trends that were uh-huh. happening that um and i still do that to this day i can look around i'll look around now even in 2020 and just see like oh all girls appear to be wearing like this thing mm-hmm, guys mm-hmm. are always dressing like that and like mm-hmm. if they were to make a movie 20 years right, from now right. that's based in 2020 they'd probably be playing the chain smokers in the background as the camera pans over and there's going to be a girl in the denim jacket with the denim with the black and, leggings. and they'll do the credits real big across yeah. the entire screen yes. Have you notice that's a trend lately mm-hmm. yeah like when they do a title of a movie or something yeah. it fills up the entire mm-hmm. screen so it's kind of it's kind of um uh what's the word disenchanting because you know you start to notice even in your own present time all the typical stuff that 20 years from now they're gonna yeah. look back and yeah. be like this is so 2020 right, and right. to know that everything that's cool now is eventually going to be looked back on sure, and looked sure. at as but cheesy. it doesn't feel like it it feels yeah. like we hit the right one yeah, this it's time like, you this know? one's cool this is cool yeah and then, now we're normal yeah 20 years from yeah. now, people are going to look back and be like, that was so corny. <laughs> I do remember in the mid-2000s actually like discussing with some friends that I worked with, like, what is 2000s nostalgia going to look like? And all we came up with were energy drinks, <laughs> uh, the thick glasses that I'm still wearing. There you go. Um, the ties were popular for some reason. Yeah, but it was kind of like this, it was kind of like this like punk, right, punk right. Uh, business look where you'd wear like a skinny button up. I'm thinking of like uh, All American yeah. Rejects right now, with like a skinny yeah. tie, and your hair was like straightened over your face. Right, you're right. like your black lipstick or yeah, something. Yeah, it was kind of like indie goth yeah. style. I feel I, like indie became mainstream in the, yes. the 2000s, like the movies and everything. But uh, I'll tell you, that's that's got to be the first like rock era, the emo era that I don't that I didn't even really notice happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like throughout my life, I can trace from like. Uh, New Wave when I was a little, little kid to like hair metal when I was a little older to grunge to new metal Mm -hmm. to like the White Stripes Strokes era, you know? Mm -hmm. But then after that, it's just just a desert. What about you, Derek? Um, I I would second that. I would say that the 2000s, the emo era, um, that's like a a phase in rock that totally went over my head as well. And I hear about all these bands now Mm. My Chemical Romance and, and bands of that nature and like or of that genre, and I, I was living out of the country from about 2002 to 2008. So all that culture, Mike, I missed all that, mm-hmm. and I might be able to catch up on some of it, it didn't now. Miss much, um, you know, like I remember buying the Avril Lavigne record when she was oh, like sure. in high school, and then I come back from Asia, and then she's like, she's all grown up. You know, it's like kind of just a trip. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But she's great. Avril Lavigne was a big. I want to tell you something, Mike. Avril, Avril Lavigne was a big favorite artist of mine. I used to yeah. listen to her CD "Let Go" oh. with her very first CD, and that that CD got me through some really tough times. Oh. And it found me traveling first to Canada. Ironically, that's her home country. Mm. First to Canada, then to Italy, and then to Asia for like the next four or five years. Nice. And and it was sort of like listening to her CD sort of obsessively and it just inspired me to do that cool. and that was 2002 when that by the time that happened okay yeah and uh one of her guitarists i believe is from uh our neck of the woods and he didn't uh i, I, I auditioned like for Pikesville. his band you know that um evan taubenfeld i, I auditioned for his band back oh. in 01 before 9 11 oh. i was the bass player and i was trying to be the bass player he, these guys were so professional i wasn't going to make the audition oh, okay. but they videotaped it and they were it was it was really cool and so um i had a chance to kind of 
jam with somebody who became a rock and roll legend right there. Wow. What is he doing now? Um, now he's a songwriter, singer, songwriter, um, solo artist living out in LA. Oh, cool. And he's been there, I think, uh, for ever since, I think not long after he hit it big with that, with Avril. Um, so he's been web based on the West coast primarily, but his family is still here, I think in, in Baltimore. Okay. Awesome. Along with, uh, the, uh, what's it, Mitch Allen, I believe his name is from SR 71. You remember him? He's oh, a, yeah, he's Mitch a big Allen. songwriter in LA. Now he wrote, um, all about that bass. He you know wrote that, that? Yeah. He wrote the Stacy's mom. You remember the Stacy's mom? Wow. Yeah. Stacy's mom. Um, um, actually, it was originally done. I forgot. There was a band that did it before. No, I think SR seventy one did it. SR seventy one did it. First. Yeah, I don't know how that worked, but somehow another band covered it like the next year, and, and then it just became the yeah, more popular. Yeah, I guess SR seventy one had already. I mean, they had like one hit, and then they disappeared. So yeah, probably because they let Stacy's mom be ripped out of their hands. That would have been their bigger hit. I don't know. I, mean, I, don't, a, I don't know. There's got to be a story behind that. Mickey's actually good friends with, with Mitch. Maybe when he comes, uh, maybe when Mitch comes home for the holidays or something, we could get him on. Okay. Um, you remember the SR-71, Derek? Yeah, very well. That was like 2000, and I was definitely, that was one of the 2000s bands that I was definitely aware of and very proud of, you know, to come mm -hmm. from Baltimore and to have this band just blow up like that. Yeah, so we had some and, we had some real uh, Maryland uh, credit there for in the in that early emo era, right? We had SR seventy one, we had Good Charlotte, yes, uh, we had the Avril Lavigne guitarist guy, and I guess that's it. Well, I think I think uh, when I think of Southern Baltimore, like uh -huh. in terms of like like the just kind of like the surrounding areas below, like Columbia, sure. Howard County, things like that, for whatever reason. They just seem very emo pop punk to me. Right, right. I feel like that region of Maryland, mm -hmm. which is, you know, Good Charlotte was from Waldorf. Yeah. Like also, Jimmy's Chicken Shack was yeah, kind Jimmy's of Chicken in Shack, that. Jimmy's Chicken Shack, Southern, yeah. you know. That, that central Maryland, uh -huh. south-central south Maryland, right. it just screams punk rock to me. I don't know interesting, why. Interesting. Just everyone I've met from there is just right, like, they, right. I don't know what it is. It, so it might like just be just because those bands were from there. Really. That could I be mean, it too. I, it's like a chicken yeah. or the egg thing, you know? Have you heard, have you, do you agree with that, Derek? Have you, you heard about this? Pop punk emo? In Central and, Maryland? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm making... Um, I, 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 def, I definitely could see that being... Uh, I, I've never thought of it that way because like I said, I've never really uh, was connected or you know, mm -hmm. or, you know, live through the emo era here in, in Baltimore or Maryland. But, um, but there is definitely, I, I teach in central Maryland in several different colleges and I definitely notice a culture. Um, I've noticed it, that there's generally something that is influenced by punk and mm -hmm. emo, but it's, it's a softer punk maybe. Right. Still punk. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's just always a connection between kind of, um, you know, kind of like mildly upper class, Yes. white suburban kids yes that you know pop punk just connects to them for some reason you know yeah Which pop is, punk is the music of right. mildly upper class white right suburban right kids. yeah yeah like you know blink 182 like yeah. and and that's that's totally fine you know i wouldn't i wouldn't put them some people might be like what, what do these kids know about punk rock you know but i i feel like everybody faces their angst and their difficulties yeah i think it was that suburban angst it was that right, angst of right. like you know my mom you know doesn't love my dad and right my dad is never around because he's yes. always working at his bank job I, re I remember that hit by good charlotte yeah. my dad is always working at the bank now i don't know it's a, you know everybody's got their would you say that blink 182 uh we're sorry just, we're yeah, no, yeah i was gonna say blink 182 could be seen as a sort of a seminal band for that sort of suburban mm -hmm. punk pop movement mm -hmm. um you, it could also be traced. I think Green Day was also very oh, yeah. influential in bringing punk into a, you know, in sort of a, a poppier sort of mm -hmm. arena. Mm -hmm. And um, it's so hard to say, but I, I, I'm actually really kind of um, digging uh, this whole sort of um, outlook. I had I had sure. never even considered it before. I thought that I always thought that Central Maryland was just like a smorgasbord of culture. Like you got hippies, you got rednecks, yeah. you got ba basically. I'm sure you do. The whole, but you know, when we whatever, say Central Maryland, I I'm, want to make sure we're on the same page because I think I just called whatever I'm talking about Central Maryland. When you say Central Maryland, what do you think of? Like regional. When I say regional, I would say with the center uh, is Baltimore, 
maybe it stops at around the Montgomery County and it goes as far north as Harford County, which Perfect. is where I grew up. Yep. And so I, and I would say maybe Carroll County, not so much. Yeah. I would say Carroll um, County as well. Like right. out, I would say Frederick becomes Western Maryland. Right. right. Carroll. But I, yeah. Okay. So we're talking about Absolutely. the same thing. We're talking about the same thing. I just want to make sure. Cause I was like, when I said central Maryland, like, I was like, are we central Maryland? <laughs> oh no. Central Maryland would be like, you know, I guess the obvious spots like Anne Arundel and Howard and all that. Yeah. PG. Yeah. I guess. And Baltimore is right in the right. middle, right? I mean, kind of in between Baltimore and DC. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like yeah, that's yeah. like pop punk dude. Yeah. I don't know what it's about there. Like, just, you drive down route 29 and you right. just, do you have the time to listen to me? Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you who never really got to do though, who should have been bigger in that scene was rancid. Rancid. Yeah. Would you guys Rancid. count them as a pop punk band? I'm not. Well, Rancid is the kind oh, of band awesome. that would probably be like, um, I guess, a contemporary of Green Day. But Green Day was sort of like, you know, lambasted for mm -hmm. selling out, so to speak. Well, they had Whereas more. Rancid never. Right. Right. Yeah, which may have been a calculated move on their part. It it almost did seem like they they intentionally, once they got to the mainstream, they're like, all right, that's good enough, and then they kind of just like went back to. You know, it didn't seem like they were trying to amplify their success once they once they had like a gold record or whatever, you know. Yeah, it's a different culture in terms of like um, the Berkeley area at the time was heavy, heavy you know, punk rock mm -hmm. through and through. And so like success in any way, like say, like making a million or millions of dollars or whatever, that would be considered like an affront to their values and their mm -hmm. ethos. Mm -hmm. And. And so the whole the whole punk scene there that's like not suburban. It's not like uh, you know. It's more like hardcore motherfuckers. Right, right, right. But Rancid Can had that, that like feel good sing along kind of pop punk right. feel, but just with like a grittier kind of aesthetic, you know. In my opinion. All right, let's get to another confession here. This is from Adam Wilder from Savannah, Georgia. I was taking a shower when I looked out the window and saw the fire simultaneously watched on TV and out of my window on 14th street as the first tower fell. So I guess he was in New York at the time, went down there, smelled the destruction, saw the people jumping pretty debt, bad effing day. So he actually witnessed this stuff. How sad is that? Could you imagine that? What, what would you, if something like that happened, would you run out and, and look at it or? What would you uh, do? Obviously, I'd look at it. Yeah, it'd be hard not to. I mean, depends on how close I am to it. If I'm looking at it from like a mile away, yeah, I'm looking R at it. Yeah, yeah. If I'm looking at it like, oh, what's I, up to I wouldn't want to see people like in pain though and crying. Like, I can't handle that. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah. that would freak me out. That would make me really disturbed. But, you know, it, it's weird because it's kind of like there's this natural human rubberneck effect sure. that you see every Absolutely. time with. With car accidents, and, and when you're driving by a car accident and you're trying to see what happened, everyone's aware that you, there's a chance you might see a fucking dude on right. the street dead. Yeah. But you just yeah. can't help yourself from looking to see what's going on sure. because it's just natural. Sure. So I think if we were actually in that situation mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. I was at a safe enough distance to watch it, mm -hmm. I'm watching it. Because, you know, the people that are watching on the news, that was they were watching that all day. Yeah. The people that are in person got front row seats. Mm -hmm. The people that are were in that same block, I'm sure they were scrambling for their lives. Sure. But as soon as they got away, they probably turned back yeah. to see what the hell was going yeah. on. So, I mean. Yeah. What do you think, Derek? Um, well, it's, it's, it's a tough call because I think that it's um, definitely not easy to watch suffering in any form. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's a human side that you – a humane side of everyone that might sort of want to see it, but they don't, they don't want to see suffering. Right. But they want to see right. maybe I like, I just saw a horrible um, sort of accident on the way home, just from the grocery store, just five minutes from home. Oh and it God. looked horrible. There were fire, yeah. fire trucks, at least several. And the whole side of the car was like busted out. And I just turned and looked and I'm like, this is horrible. Like there's no way that someone got out of that mm, unscathed. They might not even be alive anymore. Mm. And so it's, I think it's just, it's, it's hard to deal with. But we can't really look away so easily. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hopefully, I would be trying to help. I mean, I don't know if, if in situations like that, if the police and firefighters want you to help, you know, I don't know. Like, you know, sometimes they're like, just let us do it. But uh, yeah, I would imagine in that scenario, they were probably so overwhelmed. Yeah, I think it, it was, yeah. It was like such a chaotic situation that mm -hmm. it's probably like, if you can 
get a bottle of water to somebody than do it. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but the, dude, the jumpers that that's the that was the saddest part of that whole thing. So yeah. disturbing. Ugh. Yeah, I think I think the most disturbing thing about the jumpers is to, it's kind of like the self. It's it kind of like makes you think on like where their mind must have been at that mm. moment when they mm. were at at the top of a hundred story mm. building and just going okay, like mm. it's over. And they a lot of them might have been happy with their most of them probably very happy with their lives good job mm-hmm. good family yeah i mean just, 10 minutes ago you're yeah. you're totally fine you're worried about like your reports going and through. in an instant all of a sudden jumping off a 100 story building is your best option Ugh, God, and that's so something sad. that's so it's morbid it's, yeah. i mean morbid yeah. isn't even the word it's just it's like it kind of like when you sit up it's disturbing right you know right yeah that so that can sad. happen yeah what about that derek well, it's um, the part about the, um, you know, seeing people jumping from the building is, is definitely um, one of those unforgettable. Mm-hmm. It's traumatizing to watch it. Sure. And sure. To, to know that, that someone went through this. And it really brings us back to that sort of time period where we finally started to take an interest in a concern and compassion for, for other people on a deeper level. I, I think that 9-11 did offer mm-hmm. um, in, in the aftermath a, a great opportunity for empathy, a great opportunity to finally, you know, put aside differences and just, um, you know, just just try to come together as, as um, you know, as one for mm-hmm. a change. Mm-hmm. and. And and I, I guess you could say that seeing the, the jumpers, and I actually didn't see the jumpers until many years later. I think I saw a clip from YouTube of someone reacting to it, like a reaction video. Okay. To the jumping, right? That was made or something like. And, but I had I hadn't personally seen the jumpers like at the time, and uh, in my, well over a decade after the event wow. was when I wow. was when I first okay. became familiar with that. But yeah, very yeah. difficult to that, see. That really made it feel a lot more human too. You know what I mean? Because like watching watching a building fall down or an explosion doesn't seem personal. But when you're seeing an actual person commit suicide, like that's just horrible. horrible. Uh, we got to end this podcast on a more uh, uplifting note, I think. <laughs> tell, tell us something good that, that happened uh, recently for you, Derek. Um, something well, I recently picked up a couple of uh, teaching contracts at Baltimore City Community College, so nice. I will be uh, pretty right. busy in the next couple months teaching an accelerated um, composition and term paper writing, um, and it'll all be online. And so I was very pleased to have that happen. The only thing that kind of sucks about that I'll be I got a Saturday class, but. Um, in these difficult times, I feel like just being able to do what I do professionally in a professional capacity, uh, to me, that, that feels really good to be able to Absolutely. be standing. Absolutely. Well, congratulations on that, Derek. And uh, before we leave, just once again, tell our listeners uh, the, the title of the book and, and when they're going to be able to find it and all that stuff. Well, the title of the book is The Wandering Scribe, and I hope to have some news about the release sometime maybe by the end of next year. But it's about a two or three year process when it comes to when a book is finished and mm-hmm. when it's on the shelf. Mm-hmm. So let's just say 2022, 2023. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that really is how it, how it works. Yeah. I hear you. Do you have any socials you want people there. to follow you on? Uh, to follow? Um, maybe not right now. I haven't really worked all that out yet, but okay. I'm sure we'll have something later. All right. Sounds good. Well, Derek, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. This was a great conversation. Um, we, we will certainly have you back on in 2029 when your, when your book is ready. (laughs) No, we'll have you on before that. Maybe we can talk Billy the kid again or something like that. Ah, yes. I'd like that. Awesome. Uh, Jimmy, thank you so much. Of course. Good conversation as always. And, uh, we will see everybody next time on the confessional.